Welcome back and happy Labor Day. I am Kim Munson. As you know, we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation. Thrilled to be having a conversation with Dr. Burton Folsom, Jr. Uh, He has taught at Hillsdale College for many, many years and written a book that I have found very fascinating, The Myth of the Robber Barons. And since it is Labor Day, we're going to be talking about some of the great American industrialists. So, uh, Dr. Folsom, welcome. Thank you, Kim. Good to be with you today. It's great to have you as well. Now, tell us a little bit about yourself. I I followed you for many years, uh, really got interested in your book, The Myth of the Robber Barons, but you have taught at Hillsdale College uh, for a while. Yes, I have. And uh, I I taught at Murray State University uh, for many years and then went to Hillsdale College. And Hillsdale College is a fine institution, takes no federal money. Love it. And that fits nicely with the theme that I had in the book, The Myth of the Robber Barons. Well, and yeah, and to that point, Hillsdale takes no federal money. And uh, I love that because it in, then you are not constrained by all these things that uh, are coming down regarding, I mean, I think there's a lot of indoctrination at many universities and colleges throughout America by not, not sharing the whole truth about different issues, Bert. Oh, absolutely. It's very distorted. It was a little bit when I was in graduate school over 40 years ago. But uh, at that time, scholars at least said, hey, if you've got uh, ideas about free markets, uh, that's fine. We want to hear them. We just think that government intervention is the solution to many problems. We would have an interesting debate like you are doing on your show here. But today there's less debate. There's more of a shut down the opposition. And hey, more than ever, we need to discuss what works, what doesn't work, what are the best ideas for Americans to go forward with. Well, in your book, The Myth of the Robber Barons, just in the title, you know, we, we've, uh, uh, again, I think in society and in uh, academia, They've looked at these these great industrialists, uh, you know, like Cornelius Vanderbilt, John Rockefeller, James J. Hill, Andrew Mellon, uh, the Scranton family, uh, Charles Schwab. These are many of the great industrialists that you have written about in the book. And, and they've been labeled as robber barons. And obviously, robber does not have a good connotation. So right off the bat, uh, we're, we're talking about something from the negative. Well, we are, and we're talking, it's, it's ironic, isn't it? Robber is the word being used, and yet this generation uh, after the Civil War, that generation from, say, 1865 to 1900, uh, they were the ones who launched the American experiment to such success that we went from being a second-rate power in industry to be the dominant industrial power in the world. That generation made the prosperity that we still enjoy today possible. And to that point, I continue to think that we are living off the fruits of that free economy from back there. We're, we're seeing a lot of government policy trying to get this tapped down, but it was so powerful that everyday American people, we don't, I don't think we take, I don't think we're grateful enough for the prosperity that we have. And as you mentioned, I think it goes all the way back to these guys that are now being labeled as robber barons instead of the great industrialists that they were. Well, prices dropped in every commodity which they sold. I mean, that that puts the lie to the word robber right there. 
Americans and people in the world paid less for the products that these industrialists sold uh, steadily throughout the Gilded Age or the late 1800s. Uh, oil, steel, railroads, those were the major industries of the late 1800s. Prices came down in all industries to the point that in Rockefeller's case, people could light their homes for one cent an hour with the kerosene he sold. But, Kim, I want to go just one step further and say they, they laid the foundation for the 20th century by Henry Ford and the automobile or Herman Hollerith in his invention of the computer in the 1890s uh, to do the U.S. Census. That laid the basis for the two big industries that, that kept the United States in world leadership uh, since 1900. Okay, and just a question. In 1890, the lane uh, for the computer was that 1990? 1890. But the U.S. Census in 1880 took 13, it took over 10 years to compile because we were adding and subtracting the uh, families one at a time. But uh, with the 1890 census, we had the development of the use of the adding machine, the typewriter, those inventions of the, of the late 1800s. We added those into a computer system with punch cards, and Herman Hollerith was able to do the whole 1890 census in, in about one year as opposed to 13 years before. And later, his company was the foundation of IBM. Fascinating. And so what what we're seeing here is the great industrialists took products, they took these ideas that made people's lives better. I mean, just think if you could then instead of having to go out and cut wood to, you know, have energy in your home or, or light candles that for just one cent you could turn on a light. I mean, how what? how that how that helps people. It does. And it's interesting because the people at the time used these products the Ford and his automobiles or, or Rockefeller with the oil or Carnegie and Schwab with the steel or James J. Hill and the railroads, uh, they used these products and, 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 and liked them. I mean, a business increased abundantly. And what, uh, you say, well, why would they ever be called robber barons? And the answer is because historians have turned the focus to saying, hey, these people made lots of money, which is also true. In other words, we get the first billionaire in John D. Rockefeller, the first billionaire in U.S. history. And they're saying, these people, these people created uh, vast wealth, but look, they became multimillionaires. And so that's the focus. There was more inequality, therefore they're robber barons, without looking at the fact that the rising tide lifts all boats. And they pulled the whole U.S. economy up into world leadership. It's astonishing to me that uh, we don't tell the true story about these guys. Now, I'm sure that they weren't perfect. I, I, you know, I'm sure that they were very competitive in their businesses. But they, these guys built these businesses without government intervention. Uh, so which of the first, quote-unquote, robber barons should we talk about, Bert? Well, uh, you're right. They're not perfect. And the, the first one I talk about in, in the, myth of the, the book, The Myth of the Robber Barons, is Cornelius Vanderbilt. And uh, he, he, was, he was a crusty character. But if you look at his impact on markets and on people's lives, it was positive because in both steamships and railroads, he provided a faster service, a more efficient service, a safer service at a lower price. To all his customers. Now, did he receive government money to do this? 
No, he didn't. Uh, but his competitors did, <laughs> which is kind of interesting, isn't it? It very. In the steamship, yeah, in the steamship business, Edward Collins received uh, subsidies to run his steamships, but he kept raising his prices for customers. And he had accidents, ran into an iceberg with one of his ships, Oops. killing over 400 passengers. Vanderbilt had no such circumstances, and he was running his business uh, for cheaper costs and charged customers less and received no federal subsidy. So he got rich because he provided a safe, faster product at a reasonable price. People liked that. They were willing to trade their hard-earned dollars for that value, and he got rich because of it. And so that was all like a a free exchange instead of force. And on the show, we talk a lot about uh, freedom versus force, force versus freedom. And when you get government involved, for example, you mentioned Edward Collins, government forcibly takes money from somebody else so that they could subsidize Edward over here, and his product was less efficient, less safe, and more expensive. That's that's a correlation that I see quite often when government gets involved, Bert. I do, too. That's been my conclusion after studying many of these industries, and that's why I thought it was good to begin with Vanderbilt. He was the first American to be worth $100 million dollars. And he became the richest American by giving customers what they wanted. What a novel idea. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What a great idea. You know, and Bert, uh, we've got just a couple of minutes. I have done some research, and some, some quote that I saw said, people can make money one of two ways. You can earn it. Or you can take it. Now, of course, you can take it if you have a weapon or through war. But you can also take it via public policy and excessive and unpredictable um, taxation. Uh, What would be your comment to that statement? I think it's true. You You can either produce something that people want to buy and sell it to them and make money that way. Or you can rig, rig somehow the economic system by uh, forcing people to buy your product, in, in other words, having a government monopoly of some kind. Uh, and that is, uh, those seem to be the two, two ways. Uh, the one that has worked best for the United States, the one that leads to economic growth, is to have competition and people trying to produce products that people want to buy, and then the ones who produce the best products at the best price end up prevailing. Uh, Yeah, that seems to work out pretty well. Uh, Let's go to break. When we come back, uh, who's the next uh, industrialist, quote-unquote, Robert Barron, that you want to talk about? James J. Hill is Chapter 2, and his story is a replica, in many ways, of the Vanderbilt story because he prevails privately with against opponents who receive federal subsidies. It is a fascinating story. And so this is Kim Munson. We are on the line with uh, Bert Folsom. He is the author of The Myth of the Robber Barons. Uh, he t- uh, teaches at Hillsdale College. And it is a fascinating book. It's an easy read. It's, it's just, uh, it's quite short, but it is very powerful. So we're going to go to break. We'll be right back. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, it's home. Hey, welcome back. I am Kim Munson, and we are dissecting issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left, agree or disagree. 
Let's have a conversation. I am thrilled to be having a conversation this Labor Day with Dr. Burton Folsom, Jr. He is a professor at Hillsdale College, and he is the author of The Myth of the Robber Barons. And uh, that is such a misnomer uh, right off the bat, the robber barons, because it implies taking something via force. When the stories that you are telling are of people that did not take money that had been taken from others uh, and given to them as subsidies, but in fact, they offered a product that people wanted. Uh, So in the first segment, we talked about Cornelius Vanderbilt, uh, and he was in the steamship and railroad business. Now let's talk about James J. Hill. Of the of all of the essays on these guys, I, I didn't know that much about him. I found him fascinating. So tell us about James J. Hill, Bert. Well, he is fascinating. He's an immigrant. And it's interesting, isn't it? Well, uh, uh, the ultimate story here is on railroads and transcontinental railroads. And those who built the transcontinental railroads, uh, the Union Pacific and Central Pacific I'm thinking of in particular, were businessmen in the United States who wanted to get federal subsidies, and they failed, uh, ultimately, to produce a product that was worthy of consumers. In the case of the Union Pacific, they went broke several times, and the whole company had to be reformed. But here you have James J. Hill building a transcontinental railroad, the Great Northern Railroad, with no federal subsidy. And he's an immigrant. And furthermore, he's a disabled immigrant. He lost one of his eyes in a, a childhood accident. So he, he, he wasn't going looking for disability insurance or disability, a federal subsidy. He was looking to produce a great product and meet the needs of customers and build a railroad from St. Paul, Minnesota to Seattle, Washington without one cent of federal aid. How did he do it? Well, he did it. Uh, it, it we can start out the Union Pacific which was, you know, even I, even Abraham Lincoln, who was a good president uh, overall, favored the subsidies to the Union Pacific and thought that he could pick the right people, uh, Grenville Dodge in particular, to run it and that it would be an efficient railroad. But the, he paid by the mile, and so the Union Pacific had incentives not to build a particularly straight railroad, <laughs> not to build the most efficient railroad. They did it quickly so that they could get the subsidies quickly. And ultimately, it had to be rebuilt and was a failure. The uh, James J. Hill saw that and thought, this, this is ridiculous. That's no way to build a railroad. So his strategy, rather than saying, government, give me money and I'll build the railroad, his strategy was, let's make the land out in the Dakotas and Montana and Washington uh, let's make uh, the land in those states, let's make that land show itself to be profitable and build the railroad slowly as the areas become profitable. So he's relying on not only farming but on cattle, transporting them in the Dakotas and Montana, the copper in Montana. He helps make that profitable. Once he gets to Washington, he's selling, uh, working on their apples, their lumber, all of this to sell and bring out to the Midwest and the East on his Great Northern Railroad. So he makes the railroad profitable as he goes along so that he's never in a huge amount of debt. And ultimately, when the Panic of 1893 hit the United States, the Union Pacific went broke, the Central Pacific was in great trouble, the Northern Pacific went broke, and ultimately would would be bought out by Hill. And then you have uh, James J. Hill with his Great Northern Railroad, while the others are losing, he's gaining money, He's, he's making profits on his railroad. He builds it straighter, 
more efficiently and at less cost than the other transcontinental railroads. That's absolutely fascinating. And then ultimately, his dream played out uh, of um, railroads coming together, right? Yes. And, uh, I mean, he at least bought – the Northern Pacific went broke. It was somewhat close to his railroad, so he was going to buy it out and thought he could use that as in transporting goods back and forth. And ultimately – he lost in the Sherman Antitrust Act, which attacked him and said that would give him an, un, an, uh, an unfair monopoly of trade, which was odd because you still did have the Union Pacific and Central Pacific. But anyway, you know, he was the one who was attacked by the government, uh, by the Sherman Antitrust Act. But so he never actually was able to fulfill that part. But it didn't matter. His Great Northern Railroad was perhaps the best built railroad in the country anyway and continued to make profits. It's the Burlington Northern today and uh, is a very strong railroad. Yeah, that is. And, you know, I continue. We see a lot of uh, a lot of government subsidies. Um, well, here in Colorado, I don't know about other states, but it's under the guise of economic development. We have yes. economic development departments at the local level, the county level, and the state level. And the more that I've come to learn about this, and I did serve on city council for four years in my community, and what I, yes. what I realized is that this whole economic development thing is saying to, and it's typically big business, that uh, and my friend Helen Raleigh pushes back. I would say that that they would give them uh, subsidies. She said government doesn't give anything. Government just takes less from one person than another. So they say to big business right. and tax incentives or you know however the deal is structured, we're going to take less tax money from you, or we're going to give you incentives, uh, and we're not going to do that to the other guy. Which then you have. Politicians and bureaucrats and interested parties picking winners and losers instead of you keeping the, the uh, playing field level. And uh, so right. what you just mentioned about James J. Hill, I, I'm suspect on the Sherman Antitrust Act that sometimes competition likes to come in and use government to stifle you know, their competitors. I don't know if that happened there, but that does no, no, happen yes, a lot. Exactly, yes. Yes, that's exactly the kind of thing that's happening. It happened to Rockefeller, too, the same kind of thing. Yes, you have competitors, and you can, it, you can either succeed in your competition by producing a good product that people want to buy at a good price, uh, and it's safe that people want to buy, or you can somehow rig the system by getting a subsidy or preventing a competitor from competing. And uh, that, in some ways, that's more appealing to people, uh, to people who want to make money, because you think, gee, uh, here's Kim on the city council. If I can, in some way, appeal to her through a bribe or some other way, then she can give me an exclusive contract to sell my product and get put me an advantage over my competitors. And that's more appealing to a lot of people than, hey, I hate to go out in the market and have to be better than everybody else. It's easier to, to get a government advantage and win the competition that way. But the people who made America great uh, in the late 1800s, those people produced quality products at competitive prices, and we allowed them to compete and they made America into a world power. And they became rich doing that. And now we see uh, folks that want to look back at history and imply that th these guys 
robbed others uh, for the money that they made instead of uh, the fact that actually they created this product uh, that people yeah. wanted to, to trade their hard money, hard-earned money for. So, okay, let's talk about who's the next guy we should talk about. Well, you've got uh, John D. Rockefeller, the first billionaire in U.S. history. And you know, one thing I like about Rockefeller, too, is he, he never really had labor problems. We're, we're talking about Labor Day. Rockefeller, it, it's interesting because uh, there was labor unrest, and we did have some strikes here and there. This isn't to say every businessman was honest or had integrity or that all the workers uh, were reasonable in their reaction. Unions are a legitimate operation. And we did have some strikes and industrial unrest. But it's interesting with the great entrepreneurs, the Rockefellers and others, often they made the decision, Henry Ford was the same way, that, hey, if we pay workers quite a bit, our workers will get good workers, and then they'll be loyal to our company and produce good work. And Rockefeller and Ford both had very little industrial Problems. Ford very late in his career did, but but early uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when they were really making their businesses go, uh, both of these entrepreneurs, the first two billionaires in U.S. history, had very uh, limited labor problems. They were paying good wages, and people flocked to work to their companies. And by the way, America as a whole must have been that way because we received a net immigration. Uh, to this country of tens of millions of people in the late 1800s. And uh, uh, if we didn't have good jobs and that paid well, they wouldn't have been coming over here. It's interesting that you would say that. I just recently uh, interviewed uh, uh, someone who said that that they came to America uh, and wanted to work here because of the great opportunity. And just a, a side note, uh, my great-grandmother probably came over on one of Cornelius Vanderbilt's ships. And she, <laughs> okay. she was, uh, we would call her an indentured servant today. At least this is the family lore that we have. She immigrated from Germany. And she ended up working for a family in Omaha uh, to you know, help with the children and, and clean house and all to, um, okay. to, to pay off her, her ship's fare. And uh, once that happened, she married my great-grandfather, who whisked her off to the plains of western Kansas. And uh, they lived in a two-room sod house. But uh, it was quite a story. But uh, they, they had a better life. They were poor, and it was difficult. But yeah. they ended up uh, ultimately being successful. So I, uh, as I was reading the story, I'm like, I bet that she probably was one on one of Vanderbilt's ships there. So let's well, uh, possibly if she if she wanted a low rate and a safe ship ride, that's exactly the way to go. Well, and I, I think that that was the case. So let's uh, let's jump into um, shall we talk about Andrew Mellon? That's fine. He's a great entrepreneur and a great politician, both. Okay, and because uh, he was like what um, Secretary of the Treasury or something? Is that right? Correct. Okay. Under Coolidge and Harding, and actually under Hoover, too. Oh, you know what? We're, let's go to break, because you bring up Coolidge, and I have looked at the U.S. debt uh, under our historical debt, and it actually went down uh, when Coolidge was in office, and that's a fascinating story. So let's talk about Coolidge and Andrew Mellon, both as the entrepreneur 
the great industrialist and the politician. Uh, so we'll be right back. This is Kim Munson. I am talking with Dr. Burton Folsom, Jr. He is uh, an, a professor at Hillsdale College, as well as the author of The Myth of the Robber Barons. We'll be right back. My Hey, welcome back and happy Labor Day. I am Kim Munson, and we are dissecting issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation. This is quite a conversation with Dr. Burton Folsom, Jr., who is the author of The Myth of the Robber Barons. In that word robber, it implies that these folks have taken something from someone else by force. In essence, uh, how they got rich was because they created a product or a service that hardworking individuals were willing to trade their hard-earned dollars for because they believed, and it did, it made their lives better. So Andrew Mellon is a fascinating read. Uh, he was both an entrepreneur and um, was a secretary of the Treasury. Tell us about him as an entrepreneur, uh, Bert. A very good entrepreneur. You have to think, he's very soft-spoken. He, he's not like, say, James J. Hill or Cornelius Vanderbilt. In the, the, those two were flamboyant. Uh, or Andrew Carnegie, he was flamboyant. But uh, Mellon, who was from Pittsburgh, like Carnegie, uh, was actually very quiet. He didn't like the public to, to be to speak in public. He liked to do business and and be very helpful. And he was a banker at first, but he liked to do it behind the scenes. And he he, he would loan money to. Uh, industries that he thought had a good chance to be profitable. He helped start the aluminum industry. In fact, he had an aluminum automobile uh, that was almost all aluminum. He was active in oil, and uh, Gulf Oil was was one of his companies, and very competitive with the, the idea of service stations, gas stations, and all of this, and uh, saw the, the rise of the United States and how these products would be helpful. In his, uh, he became one of the wealthiest people in the United States, behind Rockefeller and Ford. We think of him as a, probably the third wealthiest American in the country in 1920, and because we had debts, national debts from World War One and from the Wilson administration from all the spending. We had increased the national debt greatly, and President Harding and President Coolidge, and later President Coolidge wanted to bring Mellon in, Andrew Mellon, because they thought, why not bring a businessman in to solve the nation's economic problems? What a novel so idea. Asked, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You ever heard of that? Huh, who would have thunk uh, it? And, and, and lo and behold, he had some very good ideas for things that could help the United States. Tax reduction was one of them because he felt that taxes that were too high were ultimately taxes that stifled economic development. So the the cutting of taxes, and when I, when I say too high, the top rate when Mellon came in was 73% on wealth, the wealthiest people. Well, if you have to give three-fourths of everything you make to the government – it definitely determines how little or how much you're willing to take a chance. And so Mellon felt we had to get that down to a top rate of 25%, and Harding and Coolidge agreed, and ultimately we did that in the 20s. That tax reduction, which, by the way, was on all groups, rich and poor, it was across-the-board tax cuts, ended up actually increasing the amount of revenue taken in in taxes. 
In other words, it, it, it sounds counterintuitive to cut the tax rates actually generated more tax revenue because you had so many more people who were prosperous. As Mellon would say, 73% of nothing is nothing. 25% of something is something. And we had a lot of somethings that were being produced Mm -hmm. in the very prosperous decade of the 1920s because Mellon and Coolidge helped encourage people to, in a free economy, to invest. Well, and I think, Bert, that's the difference between optimists and pessimists, or we see it in political uh, um, discourse today, and that is, is I think those on the radical left think that the economic pie is static, that it's just a certain size. But these great industrial industrialists realize that the pie can get bigger. We can't even imagine yeah. through creativity and innovation how big the pie can get. And so if you have more people participating in a bigger pie, tax revenues actually go up. And uh, so it seems like politicians, I, I'm calling them PPBIs now, uh, pundits, politicians, bureaucrats, and interested parties seem to be wanting okay. to keep the, the pie small. And whereas if we think about the sky is the limit, you know, again, I think we can have a great industrial uh, re- revolution again. Well, to, to, to put your ideas that you expressed very well there into another form, during the 1920s, we increased our, the pie, the economic, the economy of the United States, so much that it's the equivalent of adding the states of Texas and California in the 1920s. Wow. And so, I mean, it's like having everything that's in those states, all the economy, added in one decade. And, and you think, well, gosh, how could that be? Well, yeah, you, you have talking movies invented. I mean, you have things uh, like radio uh, that are invented. You, you have incredible improvements in automobiles that come into the 1920s where they become much more uh, of, a, of a popular item. I mean, everything from like uh, the invention of the cheeseburger to the invention of scotch tape to the invention of sliced bread, you know, a, a, a slew of inventions. The patents and the inventions came forth. And so uh, washing machines, uh, increase in telephones, all of this, and the magnitude of the increase was such that the American economy just in, uh, prospered greatly, and we had only uh, 3% unemployment and less than 1% inflation we cut one-third of all the national debt away. It just disappeared. We were making more. Uh, the low tax rates were generating more revenue than we were spending, and we had a doubling of college enrollments. Black and white, rich and poor, all uh, as groups, gained in the 1920s. So it seems like it would be a good idea to try to emulate that. Uh, And let's just very quickly talk about the debt, because uh, I feel the debt is out of control right now. Uh, There's some good things happening in the economy, but I feel that we as a generation need to step up to the plate and tighten our belts uh, and uh, work to pass on something to the next generation that's not a big fat IOU. And uh, I think we've got to take a strong look at spending and bring that down. But Andrew Mellon, when he became uh, the Treasury Secretary, they actually were able to reduce the national debt. So it can be done, right? Right. That was the last decade. In, which, in our history, in which the national debt was less at the end of the decade than it was at the beginning of the decade. 
And I, I want to add one more thing. Some people say, well, yeah, but how didn't some of this cause the Great Depression? Absolutely not. Everything we're talking about here was the opposite of a Great Depression. What caused the Great Depression was more government intervention. We intervened with the first federal farm program. We intervened with uh, federal government raising interest rates, making money harder to borrow. Uh, Ultimately, Hoover raised the income tax rate back up to 63% on top income, which stifled investment. And then we had a bailout program where if the federal government picked and chose and chose which companies to bail out and which ones not to bail out. A terrible economic policy once the government was involved. But in the 20s, before 1929, there was limited federal involvement, and therefore we had a very prosperous economy. Okay, well, Bert, we are just about out of time. We've got about four minutes, so I, I'm going to move to the future here and talk sure. about a quote-unquote industrialist that I really struggle with with that word, and that's Elon Musk. He has been uh, romanticized to many, many young people as this great innovator. And, and actually, the Tesla cars are pretty cool. I have a friend that, that has one, and uh, they are cool. But, and this is the big but, is that uh, they're not uh, profitable. I, I had found an article from 2015, the Los Angeles Times, and at that point, Elon Musk and his companies had received $4.9 billion in government subsidies. And uh, Tesla is being propped up here in Colorado. Uh, as you may know, there is a, a mandate now that is, is uh, working to force dealers to sell a certain percentage of their fleets must be electric cars. And if they're not, they're going to have to pay a penalty. And interestingly enough, they can buy credits to offset that penalty. And guess where they can buy those credits? From Tesla. Tesla. (laughs) So this is so opposite to you know what we've been talking about in the myth of the robber barons of of guys you know creating a product that doesn't need government intervention if it's such a great idea you shouldn't have to force people what's your thoughts about elon musk well absolutely absolutely historians look at the past you know when when i wrote the myth of the robber barons I, i felt very confident because i was writing on events that happened over 100 years ago in other words i could watch the consequences and the fallout from the policies that the United States adopted and from the entrepreneurship of Vanderbilt Hill, Rockefeller, and so on. So in writing that book, as a historian, I could have confidence because I had 100 years uh, after the fact. Elon Musk is with us right now. All you can say is that he is... uh, the system you describe is it historically has been a recipe for failure, and it takes a while for the failure to play out. But the failure is what happens when you when you do those kinds of subsidies and give those kinds of advantages to particular entrepreneurs. The businesses tend to be unsuccessful, and the taxpayer tends to be on the hook for a loss. Well, and I really think that. Uh it, it, I want to say it's almost arrogant for government to pick winners and losers like this. And, of course, it, you know, that's it, probably for another show, but it's all done under the guise of kind of the virtue signaling of, you know, electric cars and all. And, and, and I, I would like to have an honest discussion about well, electric a, vehicles. It's a terrible, it's a terrible system. It, I mean, part of what I uh, said in the myth of the robber barons, the government picked Edward Collins as the winner in steamships. He lost. Vanderbilt 
who received no federal funds was the success. Uh, the government picked uh, the Union Pacific Railroad as to be the winner. They ultimately lost, the money was wasted, and James J. Hill built the unsubsidized, unfederally subsidized transcontinental railroad. You could take it into airplanes. The government picked Samuel Langley to give subsidies to to invent the airplane. He failed with two flights, the two flights they subsidized. Nine days after the failure of his second flight, the unsubsidized Wright brothers, two non-college-educated bicycle mechanics from Dayton, Ohio, ended up building and operating the first successful airplane. Uh, We see it time and again that uh, the government's inability to pick winners and to actually uh, stifle the economy so that it takes longer for the real winners who can produce good products at lower prices to come forward and give customers the advantages that they seek. Oh, my gosh. Bert Folsom, so well said. And this Labor Day, it's something that we really need to think about. So, Dr. Burton Folsom, Jr., your book, The Myth of the Robber Barons, thank you so much. Thank you, Kim.